Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackAnt and your host, the Cloud 2030 Podcast. This episode is about improving the time it takes to make decisions, what we have called time to decision. And it's a topic that we like to address quite a bit. But in this case, we started from news of the day around AI, ML, Chappie, GPT, and learning models, and asked ourselves if AI, ML, and generative AI could change the way expertise is used to make decisions and improve the time to decision for experts and what type of implications that would have in the market. If you've been tracking this subject, uh, I know you will find this uh, exciting and interesting. We really start from a very high level um, of understanding in AI ML, and we go forward from there. Enjoy the discussion. Well, the one thing that became pretty yeah. clear to me was the the thing that just as I was leaving, I guess, um, the whole issue around, um, well, the argument around the uh, a moratorium on, you know, doing large language model training, which I thought was very interesting, uh, the responses. And I thought that the yeah. arguments themselves that were play, put in the um, in the letter that you know all of these people signed um, were, I think some of the arguments were were wrongheaded and were spe- not that they were not that they were incorrect or unimportant, but what was not said and, and the kinds of things that were were not included. Uh, in this uh, kind of startled me. And it felt a little bit like a a setup for, um, um, yeah, a setup in the sense that it kind of served the some of the purpose of the lar- of the the hyperscalers with respect uh, to what they wanted with respect to governance and regulation on uh, on large language model uh, and it's in in my kind of um critical approach to to the way some of this has gone what i'm now doing is trying to be very clear about what aspects of large language models and and AI are not being addressed either with new, this kind of of flood of new open source projects, a flood of new um, commercial offers built on on them. The the things that, that are hard to do or the things that certain major powers don't want to do or don't want to call attention to is what I'm I'm now looking for. So I'm kind of starting my catalog of, um, okay, A, what are the hard parts? B, is anybody trying to or making a, an attempt to address the hard parts? Three, what's being kind of ignored altogether? And what what's not being discussed? Certainly enough 
cheerleading going on for uh, LLMs or and various aspects of it. But <laughs> yeah, um, it so and and the hard critics are you know coming on you know existential threat and yeah okay worth considering are there more near-term tactical threats maybe not existential but um basically the kinds of things that put um lots of power into the hands of a few very power already powerful organizations those are things that i like to uh um, at least, uh, you know, kind of shine a light on. Yeah, I think that's that's very much worthwhile, Rich, right? Uh, for me, I'm not doing any of that right now because I'm deep in the weeds trying to survive as an entrepreneur. And my approach to large language models is uh, to be a, a user slash practitioner as opposed to a strategist right now. Uh, so I'm kind of keeping... Kind of keeping up with it, you know, but not really doing the deep analysis that 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 yeah. you described. Uh, like, for example, when you know that with that the open letter, frankly, I didn't read it because I look at that as a bunch of people trying to close Pandora's box. <laughs> well after the well after the box has been opened. Well yeah. after the box has been opened. Uh, so Tim Crawford posted about that last week, and I said uh, on Twitter that um, yeah, he was talking about, and, and my response was, you know, if you can get uh, China and Russia to sign on, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like really so we're we're going to create governance and constraints on the growth of this <laughs> when we've got entities of with that much capacity that are not going to be subject to those rules i mean come on and, and so my mm. my assessment of that whole process was it was all marketing bullshit and maybe sure was. maybe that's cynical but that's no no, I, 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 there was a lot of marketing. There was a lot of positioning, and I think there's a a, a great deal of preparation now being made by the powers and that are kind of in the in the leading positions to um, argue their case for governance and yeah. regulation, but uh, friendly to them. I, and that's why we need people true. we need people doing like what you described that you're doing, right? But we also have to understand that a, a, a base assumption or a baseline assumption is that AI is going to evolve without governance. It's oh, just wow. going to happen. And yeah. our best approach right now is to try to understand what the implications are of that so that we can mitigate the effects. Mm -hmm. Not that we can actually get people to agree that they're on a universal global governance model that's going to mitigate the risk like we do in things like cybersecurity. It's a totally different story. I think that there's a, there's a fear here that is different with this because I think that what we're seeing with these these LLMs 
is the applications and the way that they're being used are in the true sense of the word disruptive. And 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 so I, I think that there's you know there, there aren't been very few um instances of a of a technology that in my memory where it was very difficult to predict how how the how it was going to reshape um the the immediate future besides besides the terminator scenarios besides singularity and like that i i think that which you know it's hard not to expect that at some point um it's just too ingrained in in how we how we think about the tech but but we keep seeing things pop out of some of these large language learning models that have nothing to do with with you know sort of the training sets um and and i well, think i think that's that's where but I, I, it's impossible to you know the challenge or you can't regulate something when you can't anticipate the the disruption for it yeah um but i think there's two parts to this yeah. rob and and it's building off of your point of the fear i think it's just suddenly hit a lot of people dead in the face that all the technology that we may have put in place over the past three to five years, whether it's remote process automation, automation in general, uh, under digital transformation or industry four or whatever model you want to use, this has now brought all of that technology smack in our faces saying, this is actually what's going on behind the scenes in a less obtrusive way. Now you see it in generative AI or in ChatGTP, and you go, oh. holy geez, was this actually going on behind the scenes? And then you have, you know, some human beings like Mr. Musk who go, oh, now, now I'm going to go sue because they actually were scraping Twitter for the training model, for the, for the training data for the large right. language model. And the more you have people like that coming out and saying things and also the top 10 in tech, jockeying for position around it, the more evident that becomes that the fear is based on, oh shit, they've been doing this to us for years in social media and every other kind of, you know, sort of introspective way that they can without our knowledge. And that's just pushing that fear forward. By the same token though, if you look at the vulnerabilities of the data sets and you look at what's not being discussed to Rich's point, and there's a lot of it, by the way, including the fact that you didn't have to have 17 billion, you know, records or, or, or data for the training. Um, you're also beginning to see that split and it's going to come around the same way as maybe the separation between crypto and DLT. You're going to have a bunch of people, this group included, that'll look at the DLT side of the LLMs, alphabet soup, and then you're going to have the rest of the world who kind of looks at that other side of, oh, how can I profit from it and, and what can I add to it and how can I really drive you know, some profitability here? And that's going to be the not only the big tech companies, but every little entrepreneur out there will come up with another extension for it in some way, shape, or form. And people uh, like me and you are going to look at it and go, here's where the real business value is. 
whether it's in my time to data or time to decision or anything else, or fixing a real problem for a real enterprise. That's the middle it's, ground it's that about in a year the, from now. The topic, mm -hmm. the topic of the day is, yeah. is um, improving time to decision, which, which I actually think this is related to. Um, and actually, it's oh, possible to discuss executive decision making without today talking, you know, in general, talking about the AI um, changes. It, the interesting thing to me that that break that I see as a break, a breaking point in this, right? Right, Joanne, I like your, you know, the Bitcoin, the the, the crypto versus um, the DLT example here is, I I see discussions that are. I am using the open API, the open AI APIs and doing interesting stuff with the model. I absolutely have no concern that that's a service that I'm consuming and who owns the service and where the data comes from. I'm strictly looking for um, applications for that service. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and then there's another a whole nother class of conversation, which is like where I think the letter came from is like, ooh, who's going to own that? The, the service and the models and how is that going to get trained, right? The questions that, that, you know, I'm asking on this is, can I do, you know, additional training or specialized training? Like, like how those things fit together more. Um, but it's funny because it's two very, it, they're, they're, they're parallel, but very different conversations. And I'll give um, you one yeah. last point on that, just because yeah. it's in my brain and I don't want to forget to mention it. In the split between the DLT versus the crypto, it's very odd to me that the biggest voices are this are not the search engine players, the Microsoft and, and Google, but the others that are jumping onto this bandwagon and adding it in, the sales forces of the world. Salesforce will probably end up being a leader in the field for one reason, one reason only. It's taking the talk of Enterprises have all this data with which they can train models. They can it's solve all locked in our platform. Pardon? And, it's all, and it's all locked in our platform. So they I don't know. And it has been for a very long time, which means that whole ecosystem of other companies that are built on top of Salesforce will come right to the forefront very, very quickly. And the search engines will sort of lag a little bit just because of the fact that they're not as nimble in terms of their corporate structures, but also because that's not really the best way for them to go forward. If it was in any way, it wouldn't be on a search engine. Nobody's going to start using ChatGTP for SEO or to look stuff up like a Wikipedia style. You're going to want to solve a real problem and do it quickly. Right. That's I, where I see the the market well, kind me, of you know. If, if I can, let me let me spin out the thing that I think gets people more scared about AI than it being a a, a search assist. Yeah, a search a search assist or even a writing assist or something like that is is very human controlled, mm -hmm. um, right? And I, I heard a scenario that I thought was interesting that ties into your Salesforce example that I think is is. Potentially very powerful, which um, they were using um, AI-generated prompts uh, to improve their their customer engagement between accountants and uh, CPAs and the tax. It was a tax day conversation, and so 
when they were telling people, hey, you owe this much money, you know, here's where you write your check. They were using ChatGPT to provide a more empathetic um, prompt or, you know, mm-hmm. address in that. Um, and, you know, when you, Salesforce is a really interesting example because, you know, I could see with, with our CRM, if I was able to use AI instead of generating templates or things like that to actually say, oh, let me crawl my information about this person. Let me crawl the publicly inf- available data about this person and their company. ChatGPT yep. or, you know, could be writing very well targeted. I know we already do this. Um, I think we do it, you know, compared to what could be doing for this. We're, you know, um, I think we do it, you know, at, at a very kindergarten level and it's going to jump to high school level very quickly or, or even higher where you're like, okay, I can act before I, before I craft an email, I'm going to, you know, look at what the person's been doing and seeing what, like all that stuff. I can now superpower that engagement and personalize. Yes. So Crystal Knows does that. There's a Chrome extension called crystalnose.com that you can install. And when you look up somebody's LinkedIn profile, it'll give you their communication style, what sort of email to send. It even has like an email assist writing tool that it can say, nope, don't use that language. They're not going to like that. That might be what they were talking about, actually. On their um, and it gives you their disk profile based on what not only what they're finding in LinkedIn but what they're finding across the web and they're monetizing this. I don't know what I mean. They're asking for like fifty dollars a month for twenty searches, but you can do your first ten uniques free, and it's really fun to look yourself up <laughs> and see what it says. Actually, tools are really cool. to your to your point, Diana. If you look yourself up, where they they miss the mark completely is in not partnering with somebody who can allow you to correct all of the trash or crap that's out there or allow you to Mm. actually introspect where that data is coming from. Because I know a a friend of mine, um, all his information came back from another human being. And that included, are you ready for this? A bankruptcy, a divorce, a stint in jail for a DUI, Uh, like all this weird information that he's been trying to get rid of for years and had paid LifeLock to go and, you know, or one of those services to go clear Mm -hmm. all that crap up in his records. And it was all baloney anyway. I mean, he had been the victim of ransomware and the person who hacked him actually had planted information all over the place and it came up in that service that you're talking about. So I find it very interesting that, you know, from a provenance point of view, Rich, and from a sourcing point of view, there's going to be so much opportunity in this market. It's not even funny, but that's uh, the stuff wait, that talking about. Wait until we have our conversation two weeks from now, you know, following the, you know, on the, on the book club, the book. Yeah. Yes. When you, oh my God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so think about that. Mm-hmm. The the largest consolidated, or at least potentially consolidated, uh, bit of you know holders of information about individuals and about precedent things like law, travel, 
things like this. Um, Thomson Reuters, mm -hmm. Reed Elsevier, uh, LexisNexis. And you know, have any of you seen any announcements, any anything coming from these companies about their use of generative AI? These are the folks that have <laughs> arguably more data about individuals than Salesforce, Google, mm -hmm. Facebook, Microsoft put together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, and if, if, if they've got that, it locked up. Wow. I, if, not um, in every if, country, um, though. If, if not in every country. If I right. was them, I would be on one hand investing heavily in generative AI and on the other hand saying nothing about it. Absolutely right. <laughs> well, and this is this is where time to decision becomes, I think, one of the most problematic parts of uh yes. chat of AI is that if there's somebody that's working the machinery back there to which data uh, to Joanne's point, I mean, your AI is only going to be as good as the data that it can find. And the internet is not known for having super high quality data. <laughs> but well, so people are making decisions based on these recommendations. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a little dystopic. Well, not only people, individuals making uh, decisions, you look at the source of most of the data that's being used for um legal models to determine scores and metrics as to uh appropriate um penalties mm -hmm. who you know basically feeding judges and law enforcement recommendations about individuals concerning you know how they should be treated when they should be perhaps uh, in um, engaged earlier. Mm. I'm sorry, what is Tyler. Uh, what are we looking at here? Well, I was, pre was I actually sorry. put a couple of slides together uh, with regard to time to decision. So I didn't mm -hmm. mean to interrupt oh, cool. your flow. I apologize. I no, just wanted to queue it up. Not at all. Uh, the, the point that I'm I'm making here is right now, the all, all almost government agencies, including you know Homeland Security, ICE, um, FEMA, um, you know, go through the whole literature, are there among their most primary sources of data is coming from these companies, and in part they're doing it to avoid government regulation because if they hold it and do do things themselves, uh, they're subject to a different category of regulation, oversight, remediation, for example. Go to Absolutely. go to Thomson Reuters and say, hey, you know, you've got the wrong information about me. Okay. And it's kind of like, yeah, okay, so what? What do you want to do about it? It's a yeah, very, see, it's a very, very concerning issue. And your point here is, um, Joanne, I think where you're going, but I'll, I'll, and I'll stop talking for a sec in a second. This is the kind of thing that I believe is 
among those major parts of the whole generative AI, the, the whole milieu here, that people are not shining the light on, they're not discussing yeah. in any realistic way. And it ranges from, you know, what what we're doing in some sense or what the, the big LLM guys are doing is, you know, poisoning the training set, the open, you know, the openly available uh, information that's available on the, on the net without fee structure, without uh, uh, paywalls. Um, public records. Basically, well, you can't even get to a lot of the public records in their entirety without paying any exorbitant prices to get to them. This so. is true. And I know like, you know, the U S and Canada are so different and I'll give you a perfect example of why I I'm thinking along this line, Rich in the U S you guys give social security numbers at birth, mm -hmm. right? We don't, we don't get tagged within a, a numeric code until we're eligible to work and you have to be 16 years old in order to work. Mm -hmm. That's when the number gets produced. So where it comes out and where I see it playing out really nasty in, in the generative AI space is I was involved, and I'll make this very quick. I was involved in a project with a professor at Cornell University because I had written a piece about um, child, the use of child identity in things like mortgages, right? Where you move from one state to another state and the fraudsters will poach somebody's um, uh, social security number, use that, create a fake identity, get credit cards, go for bank loans, go for mortgages. And I had stumbled across this because when I uh, was doing the uh, uh, the mobile company and it was about payment, we wanted to have we were building in this secure model uh, to prevent things like that from happening. So I got involved in this project. Long story short, the reason I'm going down this road is to this day, we still I still have not seen the U.S. re -change, change that law that allows for the protection. So if you look at credit card theft, mortgage fraud, and the things that are related to child identity and, and a child being given a number at birth, there's over 380,000 cases of this in 2015. Today, that number is 1,200,000. That's babies born who are given an identity number who have been the victim of fraud. Yeah, identity poaching. Identity theft, yeah, exactly. And so all of the companies that deal with identity theft and that whole one little scenario, if you change that one rule, you could prevent a great deal of it. And then the, uh, uh, the use of what's considered public domain information wouldn't be linked to it either. So you'd prevent yeah. a lot of fraud. Well, and the whole national ID issue is so yeah. loaded in this country and has been for yes. so long. 
but you're, you know, yeah, you're not right. I'm sorry. I, I kind of missed the, the list that you had previously. You were talking about time to data. Ah. Yes. Okay. So I've divided the world into three buckets, time to data, time to decision, which is impacted by time to data and other factors, and then time to value. So if you do time to data plus time to decision equals improved time to value, you have this nice little formulaic way to break things as complex as digital transformation down into some useful buckets. So in order to make this real, useful in what way, Joanne? Useful for useful for analysis, useful for what exactly? What kind of overcoming the complexity and finding a better fit between the vision for transformation and or just business as usual and improving it. So whether you're modernizing, transforming, or looking for a way to generate more revenue or cost savings, not being part of industry four or digital transformation or modernization exercises, that you have a way to start looking at the world through a time-oriented lens. And the reason for that being that in each of the cases of technology, you can impact and improve a time-to-data operand. And what I mean by operand is not plus or minus, but rather the way in which you approach a process that influences or impacts time to data and the cost of that data as well. So I took the trouble to sort of break down what time to data items might be like, you know, the source of the data, data ingestion, data integration. And I can put this on full screen to make it bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Change data capture, data quality, data governance, preparation, stewardship, API management, application integration. And I kind of looked at this and I said, well, okay, if I'm going to talk about these things, let me take it from the esoteric of we all know what these things are and we can all see the impacts in a variety of ways in, you know, whether it's the, the method that we use for data integration, whether it's a virtualization or it's an, a, a, a simple ETL or a mining capability, whatever we're going to use, we're all familiar with these kinds of things. Or maybe so the I, PrevOps matrix. Pardon me? I said, or maybe the PrevOps matrix. Well, yes. <laughs> well, I was trying to be relative here, Tyler. <laughs> and hey, I'm, hey, I'm biased. Forgive me. <laughs> You're forgiven. Okay, thank you. I, I don't have to do anything religious because I don't go down that road too often. But the point the point that I'm trying to make here is I looked at some very specific items on time to data and I said, okay, if I'm if I'm sitting in DevOps, for example, and I want to improve time to data to make that data more accessible, not to the developers or the IO, but for business value there are things that I could optimize with RPA or machine learning, for example. So I decided that I would take this list and start breaking, putting it into something more reasonable, less esoteric. So here we have a process. 
that this is a standard process in any kind of production environment, discrete or process, mostly discrete, where you have a change order. Now, this could be interpreted in software as, oh, make a functional change, make a feature release, you know, anything of that ilk. But a process is still basically a process. And here, if we're looking at reducing the time to value overall, that means we want to break it down into decision points, improve the time to decision, which means in order to get to those decisions, you have to have data. So working backwards, time to data influences time to decision, and time to decision influences time to value. As I said, very simple formulaic kind of way of looking at the world. So to do, pardon? I was going to say, Joanna, I love your framework. Uh, I, I, I want to inject that there's an implicit assumption here that we need to uh, expose, which is the assumption is that the cost of making the wrong decision is high. Uh, so I'm a big fan of where uh, uh, Jeff Bezos was, you know, all about cost minimizing cost of the wrong decision. Uh, so I, I, it's almost like that's another. It's a uh, different dimension. It's a different dimension of the same thing, but I just wanted to bring that up that this yes. model is great when the cost of wrong decisions is high, but if we can reduce the cost of decisions to near zero, then it requires a different model. Well, this is okay. And that's why I'm using this model because ECR and ECO engineering change request, engineering change orders. So think in construction, in architecture, in uh, discrete manufacturing, in supply chain, all of those little processes that we all know and love and hate um, all come down to something as deeply troubling, but as simple as this. And time is a major factor because it's not, Tyler, just about the cost of a bad decision. It's the time it takes to make the decision that I, is really I, I, I agree one of the biggest problems. I would agree, and I would I would classify the time required as an opportunity cost. So it's a cost category for me in my mind. Yes. Okay. It's an opportunity cost. It's a uh, FTE cost. It's a machine cost. A compute cost. A storage yep. cost. Blah blah. Okay. So if I, I can, go through this, I can give you a real world example. By the way. Okay. Uh, Just. Go ahead. So, so uh, change requests. So I'm. This is on my website. I put it on a few, uh, couple months ago. So we're in a meeting with the application team, and they are, are, are about an unrelated subject. And they mention in passing that they are upgrading the version of the accounting package and releasing that over the weekend. And right. uh, being on the integration side, we're like, well you guys didn't account for the fact that all of the integrations with the corporate reporting and dashboards uh, are back-end integrations with the Oracle database and you are doing a database migration to SQL as part of your release of the new version and you're going to break all of that integration when you release that over the weekend. So when the CEO gets in the office Monday, he's going to have a dead dashboard. And uh, and. In, in terms of the opportunity, the opportunity cost, 
what we did for them was instead of telling them that they needed to stop and uh, define requirements and a project uh, uh, charter for uh, refactoring the integrations, we said, no, just go ahead and release it and we'll rebuild the accounting data integrations over the weekend so we're aligned with you. So when I talk about the cost of integrations or, or the cost of decisions, if you, if you can make the cost of responding to that change much lighter, then it creates a, a huge benefit for the organization uh, because exactly. change management issues uh, are, are much less impactful to the organization. Right. Everything so that everything that's going into that very central diamond approve ECR. What's behind that approval? The bases on which you make that decision of approval or not is what we're really what we're really talking about. And right. And, uh, go and ahead. Sorry, sorry, Rich. Ginger, I don't mean to. <clears throat> I don't mean to be rude by interrupting it. you, but time factors in every one of these things. So I have been in situations in in my life, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, where you're sitting with a problem that needs to be solved and dependencies on other human beings in other countries and or companies and or rules and regulations get in your way. And this process, which should be like that, or within a matter of minutes, ends up taking two weeks or three months or, or five two, years. Yeah, or five years and, and still is unsolved. And still remains unsolved. And so if we can look at shortening the time, like for example, between identify a change required, and I'll come back to that in a second, and prepare the request forms, which should be an automagical process, Yep. should be, but is not necessarily because the data comes from different sources, then if I shave even one hour off that process, I have now removed cost out of the equation completely. Why? Because my process, wow. my production line did not have yep. to stop for yep. maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. That's, and with each of these boxes. 100%. And by the way, that relationship is mathematically exponential. Because every time you Correct. take an hour out, you take it out every time the process runs. Mm -hmm. but, but, but hold on, but hold hold on, because I want to jump back from this, which I love and is analytical, to thinking how easy it would be to then frame in uh, an AI into this model. Because one of the biggest challenges here is if you want to improve time to decision, right, you're talking about pretty point decisions, tactical decisions. One of the, the things I've been no. doing a lot of is, is that, well, but hold, hold on, bear with me for a second, because I've been, I've been working on, like for RackN, as we go through some of our, our business blueprinting processes and lining out, you know, 10-year uh, goals, five-year goals, quarterly goals, right? Getting all those things lined up, and we're doing a much better job of documenting, you know, sort of the, the matrix that we're going to make for decision and prioritization. Being able to apply, very, but that counts on people understanding it, listening, and paying attention to it. If you could actually frame out those, you know, back into a decision-making process to review, 
and then compare mm-hmm. it against um it's funny because we were talking about personality data and things like that you could actually be fitting actions and change orders against business priorities from a personality business personality mm-hmm. in a sense yes so you can also so- use the same model if you're thinking about um gdpr you know yes somebody somebody makes a legitimate you you determine it's a legitimate request to have certain things either changed uh eliminated what have you and you go through the same it's the same kind of approval process and once approved go through it time is uh, is a very big issue the thing that this model implies though and i think it's to your point rob is that that both that creation of the ecr with all associated objects it's also it's almost like saying i've got to also create a um environmental uh impact uh, uh i i also i almost an an impact study that says all right here's the change request and coming along with that has to be things like all right if it if the change is going to be cat um, yes i see catalogs data catalogs i got it um they if the if the whole point is to you know make a change is that if the change is going to have repercussions that cannot be remediated or mm-hmm. if the remediation can be shown that to tyler's point is it's a you know it's lightweight then fine you know you jump ahead the point i guess i'm 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 raising here is that the whole approval process is based on how many dimensions how many you know what are the important dimensions about the change must one consider and you know when you're weighing off time against making that decision you know you you don't want something that for example is irreversible or you don't want something that can't be remediated at a believable or affordable price i i think we okay, can so- simplify that i think we can simplify that a little bit and we look at you know, there's a great opportunity to use AI to uh, uh, to score the relative uh, benefits versus the relative costs of making the wrong decision in the approved ECR diamond. Uh, so we have we actually have a potential to automate the approval process. For all yeah. of the things where we have a high confidence in the benefit weighting and a high confidence in the cost weighting and an internal rate of return over that benefit versus the cost and the change sure. re- uh, approval process. So uh, imagine that we could eliminate the approval process for 90% of the change requests in that model. I mean, that's a game changer. Sure. Exactly. And this is what and so- this is what. This is what banks and insurance companies are now under obligation to provide, at least towards this, with their uh, risk models. Sure. The models that they use to determine, you know, whether to issue somebody a loan or 
so go, you know, the problem there, of course, is that when they document and then validate those models, uh, it takes a human being now, you know, five, six, seven weeks to prepare something, you know, a gra- a, 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 a GSB, you know, a business school graduate straight out can do it, but it takes, you know, takes a couple months. And what people are now looking for are uses of machine learning. I, I won't call it AI, but they're doing yeah. machine learning in conjunction with um, document creation to validate, you know, validate their their risk models. And some of these <laughs> banks have thousands of them. So I, I, you can I, imagine. I, I actually need to wrap because I have to. I have to jump oh. on another call. Okay. Sorry, I've been trying to give y'all this. It, this is, I mean, we we get so deep into this. All right, it's going to make uh, our book club in two weeks. Data cartels thing super interesting. I'm going to have to at least yeah. read the book. I don't know if I can make it, but I'll at least read the book. Well, I, I, we'll I want to continue with this because if we can at some point, okay. because to me, I think that I have a way, I have figured out a way to make this legitimately real in oh i think i think you're right joran and adding i'm adding it to the i'm adding it to the meeting uh it'll be what i think june 2nd i'm sorry i'm making a note it also ties into our metadata conversation i think this is a big time size of this same (laughs) coin yeah and and as well i will tell you that in the actual decision making process for it for cios it actually makes the decisions faster and simpler with risk mitigation because the objects that you're touching in each part of the process can be accelerated and reduced to get that time to value and lower cost. So I use this because it's tangible, but any you could do a number of different kinds of processes for this. And reduce time to decision in a way that makes sense to everybody. Sorry, I don't mean to make you go yeah. over. No, that's, that's all right. Yeah, but can would you mind sharing this graphic with me? I'll use it as the I'll use it in the or post it somewhere public. You don't mind. Otherwise No, not at all. I, I actually I need to talk to you about a couple of things anyway, but yes. Um cool. this is this is one of the killer processes in manufacturing. There are others, but this is why the opportunity for all of the stuff that we've been talking about from Tyler's perspective, from Rich's perspective, and from yours, it all kind of coalesces into, hey, if you put these three things together, you might have a killer of killer apps, but irrespective. Yes. I will put it together in, with more words on the decision side and also the time to value side. Yeah, my, uh, my, my, uh, I've got to, y'all, y'all, I actually, I have to clear the bridge. I need, I need to get y'all. See you guys. Sorry. Bye. Bye. Wow. What a fantastic conversation. We are really starting to bring the impacts of AIML into other fields, uh, a theme that we really like to explore in cloud 2030. And one that I hope you are interested in also, especially if you've made it far enough to be listening to my outro, please 
come in, join us, add your voices and questions. We have the whole calendar and schedule at the 2030.com or the 2030.cloud. And you can uh, join us and hear more there. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.